0: to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is going to be the text this evening. I do want to say that I'm really excited for this summer joint event. It's been something that uh, a few of us have been praying a lot about and we're excited for and we're looking forward to just see how the Lord will grow uh, our church um, in the the different things that we have, whether it's teaching on Friday nights or the flock groups. uh, We trust that if, if we continue to just follow faithfully in, with God's word and just do what God's word has said. that he'll grow us spiritually and cause us to grow united as a body as well. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16 is going to be our text. I'm going to read from verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to pre- preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, the expression, he has ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended into himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature man, to the measure of the statue which belong to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking, tr- but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, By What every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Lord, we're thankful for this evening. We're thankful for this summer series where we can dive into your word some more about how we can be a church, uh, how we can serve one another, how we can love one another. Uh, Lord, we want to be faithful and do church according to your word, not by our own desires. Be with us now as we study the text, that you can illuminate our minds, and not only to know your word, but also to apply it into our lives. Thank you for this time. In your son's name I pray, amen. Unity is a buzzword in our modern time. Unity is something that everyone wants, uh, with the assumption that we can gather a whole group of people together, that we can accomplish great things. That's actually true. Historically, if you look at things like in World War II, some of the greatest atrocities happened because a group of people united to cause evil in the world. And on the flip side, there are some times in, in history where we see that a whole group of people will unite to do good things. Whether it's for humanitarian efforts or to fight different diseases, unity is needed in order to accomplish great endeavors. When we speak of unity, when we speak of unity in the context of the local church and the body of Christ, it is far more greater and significant than any worldly goals. The world's idea and goal of unity is vain, while God's goal for the church's unity has eternal significance. The world's unity is founded on frail men and temporal causes, whereas we as Christians, we find our unity in the eternal one and the first cause Unity for the church is not about growth, it's not about social work, or anything that's part of this world. Our goal in unity is to give God the highest praise, is to give him the highest worship, is to declare his beauty to the world. That is the the mission of the church. The mission of the church is that we are here to win people to Christ. And one way we do that is by being united as a church. We glorify God in our unity. Our God himself is a triune God. It's that there's a harmony. There's a unity between each member of the Trinity. The the church shows its belief in the unity of the Trinity when we're united in the body of Christ. How we reflect our God in the harmony that is in the Godhead is, is through the unity that we have is within the church. The greater the love that we show to one another, the greater evidence that it shows to the world that our God is living and is real and is working through us. We show that God is real in our unity. This portion here in Ephesians 4 is the so what, it begins the so what passage. Notice in verse 1 it says, therefore, it assumes that you understand the first three chapters. These first three chapters are all doctrine. The last three chapters are our practices. Uh, the first three chapters is, is understanding what you need to know. The last three chapters of this book is what you must be. The first three chapters is what you need to have in your brain. The last three chapters is what you need to do with your hands. The, the, the first three chapters is doctrine, whereas the last three are actions. All that we do in the church and outside the church, all that we do in our lives, it's driven by doctrine. Whether it's prayer, whether it's evangelism, whether it's even things like forgiveness or love, everything that we do hinges on what we know about God. You notice that this therefore is there intended for us to apply what we know about the Lord. Just to quickly summarize the first three chapters, Ephesians 1 talks about our salvation, that before the foundations of the world... God has loved us. He predestined us for salvation. And how does he do this? How does he do it? He does it by the work of his son. His son came and he died for our sins. It was the blood of Christ that's needed for, to pay for our debt. And not only that, but the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit that seals us, that gives us assurance that our salvation is true, that when we die believing in Jesus Christ, we will be with him for all of eternity. We were chosen by the love of God, saved through the blood of Jesus, who ransomed us from our sin, and, and we're assured, because of the work of the Spirit. All three members of the Trinity is active in our salvation. All three members of the Godhead is needed for us to be saved. All three of them work together so that we can be made right with Him. That's what chapter one is about. If you just summarize chapter one is about our salvation. Chapter 2 talks about how we were dead in our sins. Before we came to know Christ, before we came to be alive in Christ, we were dead. We were just spiritual corpses. But it's by God's grace that we are made alive. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with what Christ has done on our behalf. Ephesians 2.8. This is the anti-cult, uh, anti-work cult verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not and that not by yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I love what the next verse has to say about why we're saved. We're saved because we are saved by God's work, so that we can do good works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God, through his work and on the cross, allows us to do good works. That's what the whole summation of chapter 2 is. talking about how we were all dead, and because of what Christ has done, we can now finally do good works that are pleasing to the Lord. Chapter 3 talks about how Paul and his stewardship of the gospel, how the mystery of the gospel was at one point obscured and was only given to a selective group of people. But God in his, his kindness and his goodness has now revealed it, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and to the whole world. The whole world has now have the opportunity to hear the goodness of the gospel. Paul explains his own stewardship. This is a person that was a Jew, that was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, and now he is a minister to the Gentiles. He is—he understands God's work in his life, so he goes and declares God's truth to the ends of the world. Our God is a God that saves. Our God loves all of humanity, and He's doing his, and He's and his, by His sovereign will He saves us. He makes Himself known. All Christians experience these first three chapters, whether they know it or not. Every Christian experiences the first three chapters, even if they're not aware or fully understand every nuance of the first three chapters. But the greater knowledge you have of these first three chapters, the more that you apply God's word. The more that you apply the last three chapters of this book. The more you know of God's word, the more a Christian will naturally apply God's word. So the, more, the deeper you dive into this, the more you apply in your everyday walk. This book can be summed up in one word. That is the word position. Everything that you do is in relative to the the position that you have with the Lord. If you understand that your position with the Lord is that you're made right with him by his grace, you will live wholeheartedly for him. If you know that you're living for the Lord, your relationship with your wife or your husband will be right. Your, Your relationship with your parents will be right. Your relationship with your coworkers or your boss will be right. You want to be faithful to the Lord, and you can only be faithful when you understand your own position to, who he, to the Lord. Everything hinges on your position with God. So it's interesting when we get to chapter 4, this, verse, this whole first section of chapter 4 talks about the unity of the church. It's almost like Paul is thinking that this is the thing that Ephesus needs the most. This is a church that, that he loves, has, has great affections for. Sadly, if you read the book of Revelation, you know that this church ends up leaving in terms of not loving God the way they're supposed to. But at the time when Paul wrote this letter, this church was a faithful church. And he, and he tells them to continue to live in unity with one another. And this, is what, and this is why we want to study this passage. When we are going through the summer events, there's going to be people that are in different life stages. There are people in different uh, marital statuses and different places of your life. But yet we can still be united because we have Christ. And when we are united together, we glorify the Lord. We give him the highest glory. If we want to be effective as a church, if we want to give God the highest glory, if we want to show the world how beautiful our Savior is, the most basic thing we need to do as a church is to be united in Christ and united as a body of Christ. If we wanted to, want to have this unity, there are three aspects of unity that we must understand. Three aspects of unity that we're going to go over tonight. The unity of the Spirit, from verse 1 to 6. The unity of function, verse 7 to 12. And the unity and maturity, verse 13 to 16. The first point, the unity of the Spirit, verse 1 to 6. Notice that, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Notice that Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. Paul is writing in prison. He's, he's doing like a little wordplay play here. He, even though he is in prison currently, he's calling himself a prisoner of the Lord. Although he's a prison, Although he is in prison, he finds his greatest identity being a prisoner of Christ. This is not the first time he said this phrase, so he said this in chapter three, verse one, for this reason, I the prisoner of Christ Jesus, this is not this he, he does this so that he the readers will know that even the apostle has to submit to God. Paul's objective as an apostle is to minister to the Gentiles. This is a radical shift in this person's life. Remember Paul used to be a Pharisee affairs, he used to be a Jewish person, he upheld all the laws, and the Jews at the time had a not-so-loving relationship towards the Gentiles. But when the moment when Christ saved him, the moment when he was converted into a follower of Christ, the moment he became a prisoner of Christ, he submitted wholeheartedly to the Lord. This is a person who at one point didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles, and the Lord has instructed him specifically to minister to Gentiles, to love on the people that he naturally hated. And how does it happen? It's because he's a prisoner. He... He's a prisoner of the Lord. He, he hasn't changed life. Paul understands his mission, and he submitted to every command of the Lord. So when Paul is telling people to submit to the Lord, understand he's speaking from experience. He's not just telling people, like, oh, I'm an apostle, now you need to listen to me. He knows what it's like to die to self, to be united with other people who love the Lord. He's willing to give up his own desires, his own preferences, because he values Christ more than anything. And my question to you is this. Do you see yourself as a prisoner of the Lord? Do you see yourself as someone that is submissive to him? Do you, it, because it doesn't matter when we talk about unity if you first and foremost are not united with the Lord. It, it makes no sense why you would be united with the other Christians if you yourself is not united with Christ. You need to be first and foremost a prisoner of the Lord before you can be united in the body of Christ. Paul had a specific instruction by the Lord to go and minister to the Gentiles. Remember, Acts 9, 15 and 16 tells us that God tells us that Paul is designed to suffer for Christ's name's sake. And he's to suffer and he's a minister to Gentiles. It's not an easy job description. You know, like if you imagine you're hiring for, if you're being hired for, or you want to apply for a job, you ask them, what am I supposed to do? Oh, you're supposed to suffer in this job. Chances are you will not accept this position. But because Paul understood how precious and how great his Savior is, he's willing to do anything for the Lord. Whatever the Lord tells him to do, he will do. He doesn't hesitate because Christ matters more than anything. Paul exhorts the church. To do what he himself is doing. That is to submit to God. Notice he writes, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. This word implore, it's not saying that you, you one day down the line you need to obey or you've only obeyed once in the past. No, Paul is saying you need to obey right now. At this very moment, you need to walk in a manner, you need to continue walking in a manner that's worthy of, the, of your call. The word "worthy" is—it's is, this idea of a scale. It's weighing something. It's—it's it's, the Greek word is "axios," where we get the word "axiom." It's the idea of if it's something—it's like scale. If you put something here, and then it's like, okay, this weighs a certain amount, and it'll be equal, right? You know, those Chinese herbalist people—you know what I'm talking about? You know, they're like, okay, this—how this much herbs, and this how much it costs, and if it's equal, then you pay for it. It's the same idea here. Paul is saying that you need to continue to walk in a manner that's worthy of your profession. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, then your life should match up to it. I, 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 is John Mark here? He left, right? Okay, good. He's, he's, he's here. It's like imagine if John Mark <laughs> said, hey, man, I'm a lightweight. I only weigh 120 pounds you would think, okay, you're clearly lying because you're not. I mean, your arm probably weighs 120 pounds. <laughs> and you know, it's like, if you're no, like, oh, man, I am 120 pounds. I'm like, no, man, you're not. You're not lightweight. You can, I can tell. You're like you're, you're the, Your profession does not live up to the way that you are. In a much more serious sense, that's how we are supposed to be as well. If we profess to be a Christian, if we profess to be a prisoner of Christ, if we profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There should be evidence of that. You should have, your your walk should be balanced with the worthiness of Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian that does not live up to their profession. A follower of Christ will live up to the worth of Christ. If Christ matters to you, your walk will be balanced with it. If Christ doesn't matter, then it will, be, it will be lopsided. You can profess and know all the doctrine, but if your life doesn't live up to it, you're not walking in a manner that is worthy. So check your own heart. When we are doing these flock groups, part of the idea is that we are going to constantly check ourselves to see if we're continuing walking in a manner that is worthy. You're going to have different people in your lives, older, younger, same age, different life stages, and they're going to help you with that and you're going to help them as well. You're going to have different people that are going to minister to you, and you're going to minister to others as well. And, that's, and it's good because you have other people to, to watch your blind spots and make sure that you are walking in a way that is worthy. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Notice that these words, with, is, this assumes that if you are a Christian, these are the attributes that you will have. You will have humility. Humility is this idea of a low-mindedness. It's to look, it's to it's think lowly of yourself. It's often associated with the homeless, people who do not have much, or people that are humble. That, this is the attitude that Christ has, and this is what the attitude that we must have ourselves, that so we are people that are humble. Notice this: with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is willing to give up one's own right, it does not mean weak. It means that it's power that is under control. It's often used to describe an animal, a really powerful animal like, like a horse that is tamed. This is, a, this is a, like a person who understands his abilities and his limits, but he doesn't use it to hurt others. It's not moved to act on their own will. Notice the next one is patience. This is the idea of long temper. It's allowance for people's shortcoming. It's not quick to react to others' faults. It's patience is self-control, even when everyone around you is losing control. This is what the idea here, that you are willing to endure. Notice that there's also showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. This is an amplification of, what, of, what, of patience. Showing tolerance, showing tolerance is to fully accept them in their uniqueness, in their flaws, in their weakness, in their shortcomings, in their preferences, and notice that all of these are are an aspect of the, of, of the fruit of the spirit. This is love that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of these attributes are expected if you profess Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to see your life as worthy to the profess uh, worthy of christ 's name, you should have these four attributes. these things are the our attributes that our Savior has, and we must have it as well. Verse three being diligent and pres- to pres- to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice this word being diligent. this means to go all out it's resolve to do your absolute best it means. What are you doing your absolute best in is to preserve the unity. It means to keep guard, to watch over, to protect the unity in the church. If I was to translate this verse again, I would translate it this way. Doing your absolute best with all diligence and excellence to preserve the unity of the Spirit. When you understand that God wants us to be united as a body of Christ, you do all that you can to protect it. This is God's instruction for us. It's that we want to be a body that's, that's united in Christ. There are certain words or things in the world that just assumes that there's two things to one. For example, Reese's Pieces. When you hear Reese's Pieces, you think peanut butter and chocolate. You don't think them individually, because they're individual. They're just chocolate and peanut butter, right? A, a chocolate, that you, if you just have a piece of chocolate... And it's, called, and it's labeled Reese's, but it's only chocolate, no peanut butter. And it's a lie. It's only chocolate. Scam. Sue them. <laughs> I'm kidding. And, say, and it goes with everything else, like marriage. If, if, if a person came up to you say, said, I am married, and they don't have a ring, and they don't have a spouse, then, then it's like the sad. You know, it's like, okay, why, you're just a single person. You're not married. There's certain words that have assumptions connected to it. In the same way, when we think about the church, there are certain assumptions with that word. When, we, when you say the word church, the thing that comes to mind should be a group of people united in worship to our God. There should be, it should not be individual people that are separated. Because that's not a church. That's just, indivi- that's just just scattered individuals. When we talk about a church, we're talking about a united body. Everyone is together in one Desire and one goal, because we all worship one God together. Being in the church assumes that there is a natu- it is natural for us to be together. We're united as one whole, but due to our own sinful nature and the demonic influences, and demonic attacks and worldly influences, the reality of spiritual warfare requires all of us to be diligent in preserving that unity. Look at verse four, six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul reminds the church of the unity that is in this, the oneness of the church. Paul reminds us of the oneness of the church. This word one shows up six times in this section. Those who are one with Christ will be one with the body of Christ. We are all one body. And I love this. This is a perfect illustration of of what the church is supposed to be. We are all connected together. We are all one. If a a hand is not connected to the body, it's just a missing, it's just a, a severed limb. It's not connected to the body anymore. And that is not the case for Christians. Understand, there is no such thing as a solo Christian you are a Christian because you are, you are one united with Christ, and there is a, ch- a body, a church body that you are a part of. It is, it is a contradiction if you call yourself a Christian and you're separated from the body of, of Christ. This is why we meet on Sundays. This is why we meet on Friday. This is why we are promoting things like Flock Group, because we want you to be united. We want you to be connected into the church. We want you to be involved in other people's lives. We want other people to be involved in your life as well. We are all one body under one head, which is Jesus Christ. Notice in the text, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. We are one body with one direction, but we also have one goal at the end. Another reason in our unity is not just because of what Christ has done in the past and the present for us, but where Christ is taking us. Christ is taking all of us into glory. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what age you are or life of stage you are at, you are all, we're all going to the same place. We're all headed to glory together. Some of you have in your, let's say, you're in your college, in your high school days, you have a certain class of people that, you're, that you start out with. When you guys enter college, you guys go to different colleges. And maybe in, in your college classes, they're different. You have, you have a similar class, and you start together. But you guys don't, you may not end up in the same place in your work. You know, some of you might have different jobs. And even if you guys have the same, you work in the same company, you might have different positions. Where you start in terms of high school or college, you may not end in the same place in your career. But as Christians, we are the opposite. We come from different backgrounds, different places, but yet we're headed toward the same direction. As Christians, we understand that where we are going is heaven. We get to be with Christ. No matter, the, no matter what background or age or current life stage, we are all headed to the same and we're striving to the same goal. True unity in the spirit means we are united together and are headed together in the same direction. This is why, uh, this is what, one of the great things about the church is that we're constantly reminding ourselves, each other of the hope that we have that's in us. Everything in this world is temporal. We might be struggling through things, but if we remind ourselves, when we encourage ourselves of the things in heaven, of things that we will have one day, it gives us all hope. And God wants the church to be united because we all belong to him. And the church is the closest thing that this earth have to heaven. Because in heaven, we're going to be doing the singing, and we're going to be worshiping the Lord without the sin. And this is just a little foretaste of that. If we love Christ, we love the bride of Christ as well. It doesn't make sense for a person to say, I love Jesus, but I hate the bride. If you said that to me, I'd be like, okay, we can't be friends anymore. Because it's awkward. You know, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must love the bride of Christ as well. Because the bride of Christ has a worth to it. Christ purchased it with his own blood. He died for the church. And when we claim that we love the Savior but hate the, the the church that he redeemed, it shows us our our lack of understanding of what Christ has done on our behalf. It is a grave offense to the Lord when we cause division in the church. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's simply put that there is truth that is only founded in one God. Everything that we believe in hinges on truth, and in all of that truth is from one God. We're all united in all of these things because we are united in truth. True unity is found in Christ, and if you are a follower of Christ, you can relate to one another in a way that you cannot relate to outsiders. Because your greatest desire, your greatest hope, if it's in Jesus, then there's something that no one else in the world, that non-believers can, can connect you with you with. They may have superficial desires and superficial preferences, but you cannot relate to them as well as you will those people in the church. This is one way we can show the world The beauty of our Savior is by understanding that we worship God together. The people see us and they're like, why are these people gathering Friday nights and Sunday mornings? Why do they do these things? It's because we love Jesus. We love discussing the scriptures. We love mortifying sin in our lives. We love to be with other believers because other believers remind us of our Savior. When, you, when other people are more sanctified and you see them, you're encouraged because those are glimmers of, uh, glimmer, glimmers of how our Savior will be. You see someone that's really kind. You understand that there's someone even more kinder than that. Than that. that is our Savior. When you see someone that's more, is a, when they demonstrate a great amount of love, you understand that our Savior demonstrates a greater love. It's supposed to point us, each of us, when we are living rightly, we're walking in the Spirit, we'll encourage other people to be more like our Savior. And it, and it draws non-Christians and even it draws non-Christians to our Savior or it encourages believers to want to be with our Savior. Not only are we called to be united in spirit, but we're also called to be united in function. If we want to, if we want to glorify God, if we want to show him how beautiful He is, we also need to be united in function. Verse 7 to 12. Verse 7, but to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice that Paul states that there is more to our salvation than just being united in Christ, but that Christ himself gives us gifts. God gives us certain gifts according to his grace. Notice as each. There's a word each here, and it's significant because that means every single one of us, every single one of us here who follows Christ are given a specific gift to be used by the, by the Lord to glorify himself. God gave us certain gifts to perform in the church. We're not talking about miraculous gifts, but ability to serve the body. Brian's going to talk about this more in a few weeks. But the idea is that the, that the Lord has equipped us with certain things to do to serve in the body of Christ. The gift, the gift that each of us have, whether it's an ability or a resource, are from the Lord and is to use to serve those around us. Whether it's, if you're, some of you guys are really great at encouraging other people. You just have this knack of knowing what to say during difficult times. Others of you are are good at admin. I mean, I'm so thankful for people like Alex and John and Roger because they are great at administration. They this whole event, all this stuff is all the stuff that happened this summer is largely because of their work. They're they're just good at trying to piece things together so that we can do ministry. Whatever talents that you have is from the Lord, and you need to use it. And this includes even singleness and marriage. Both of them are a gift to the church. If you're a single person, you have a unique opportunity to serve in ways that married people cannot. And if you're married, there's ways that you can serve in ways single people cannot. Both are needed in the church. The church is not exclusively one or the other. It's both. It's anyone and everyone that follows Christ. We're to use our gifts to edify and to build up the church. Each one of us have an important role. Each one of us are crucial. And each one of us have a responsibility to the body of Christ. There is no such thing as a person that's part of the body of Christ and they're not functioning in the body. Either you're serving the Lord or you're being disobedient. The cross of Christ not only gives us redemption, but also resources to be a part of God's instrument in ministering to one another. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, I think Roger and I shared this before about how seminary students are generally really poor and then Occasionally, they'll, be, they'll get this letter with all this money in there, and they're like, oh, okay, now I can finally eat after 90 days of fasting. I'm, k- I'm kidding. But, you know, the idea is like we, there's, there are people that help these seminary students. How do, and I know for a fact that these seminary students, I'm, some of them are my friends. You know, they're like praying, and they're praying They're asking the Lord to provide for them because they don't know what, uh, what's going to happen if they don't get X amount of dollars. And the Lord just uses people that are wealthy to go and pay and to minister to those that are in need. That's how the body works. You can be an answer to someone's prayer if you understand that you are an instrument of the Lord. Whatever, whatever abilities you have, if you're part of the body, you can be an answer prayer to those that are in need. Some people need encouragement. Some people even have things that need, like physical needs that they, that they, they need met. And some of you are, are able to do that, to be able to serve. That's what the church is. We, we understand each other's needs, and we do our best to meet those needs. All of us are important parts of the body of Christ. Paul then explains more about our gifts. Verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a reference from Psalm 68. And the idea here is a picture of a king returning from war with captives and and gifts and spoils of war. Uh, This idea is like when a king goes out and he wins a battle, and he comes back, into the air, and there's captives, and there's things that he's brought back from the land that he, that he went, went to war against. And people rejoice knowing that, that their king is not only the one that's fighting for us, but gives him certain gifts. Verse 9 and 10. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. There's a lot in these three verses, but just to sum it up quickly, this is really a summation of what Christ has done. This is a summation of all of Christ's work. Christ coming down from heaven, living a perfect life, lifted up on the cross, being brought down to the grave and resurrected and then ascending back to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 68 is the imagery that Paul is using to give to show the victory that we have in Christ, that Christ went out He went out into war and he fought and he overcame sin for us and he came back with gifts for us. The greatest war is over and we are made right with God and God gives us ability to serve and minister to one another. Paul then lists some of these gifts. Look at verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. This is God's sovereign plan. He gave certain people apostles and prophets. These are this, uh, these are apostles and prophets are people that are distinct and unique in that they are people who have the ability to write out what God wants. These are the people who, who writes down scripture. You know, we, uh, in early on in Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, everything built on the foundation of what the prophets and the apostles wrote down, everything that they have written, the Old and the New Testament." This is all from God. God especially identifies certain men in the past to write down his words so that the church knows how to live out their lives. Notice the next one is evangelists. Evangelists are special people who are able to go and just share the gospel. And they have a unique desire and ability to win people to Christ. These are people that, and that may be some of you here. Some of you may be people that have a heart for the lost. Use that gift. Use that gift well. Go and evangelize. Go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And notice this last one. Some as pastors and teachers. These are, I see these two as one, and that they're pastors who to shepherd those in the flock and teachers are those who teach God's word. They teach the things that the apostles and prophets have wrote down. Their main job, teachers and pastors, their main job is to feed the flock spiritually. They're to guard truth and to refute error. They're also to pray for the flock. This is what, what Acts 6 describes. The, the pastors and teachers, their unique role in are feeding the flock, of, the flock of God with God's word. And if it is their duty to do so. Again, just like the evangelist, if you, if you are gifting evangelism and you're not doing evangelism, you're wasting and squandering the gift of God. And if you are a pastor and teacher and you fail to do these things, if you fail to, do, to shepherd the flock or teach God's word, it's a failure to, in the eyes of the Lord. And if whatever failure in the eyes of the Lord is considered sin. We need to be faithful with the gifts that he's given us. Look at verse 12. It, the result of teaching and teaching is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The pastor is supposed to teach faithfully, The pastor and teacher teaches God's word, teaches biblical principles so that people know how to do ministry. We teach you God's word, biblical parameters on what to do and what not to do and what to be and what not to be. And you're supposed to figure out how to use God's word in your daily life. Our our hope with this group is to do that. You know, we have different ministry needs, but there's also needs that we aren't even aware of. Some of you know these needs. And I would encourage you, if you know these needs and you have a desire to, to, to meet these needs, go for it. We want you to use your gifts. We want you to use the talents that God has given you to build up the body of Christ. Our goal as teachers is to teach you what the Bible has to say so that you can live out in a way that is worthy, and in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Christians are to put to work what they learn. The union of function is when we are all faithfully using our gifts that God has given us. The church is unique because we use what God has given us, the desires and the abilities. The church grows and to be more Christ-like when we use those gifts. There's a phrase in the world that's like 20% of people do 80% of the work. That is a worldly concept, and I would say that's even demonic because that's not how the church should be. The church is designed so that 100% of the people in the church are serving in different ways. I remember there was a, in my old church, there was a lady that was handicapped, and the only thing that she can do to serve is just to hand out bulletins. She did it joyfully, and she did it lovingly. She's just, just faithfully just serving, just handing out little pamphlets. And that's, that's an important role, even though that seems so insignificant. It is, is, it is her using her limited talents to serve the body of Christ. And whatever your talents may be, use it. Use it to build up the body of Christ. Every one of us are gifted with a specific skill set to, to be used to glorify God and to build up the body of Christ. When Christians choose not to use what he has given us, we are wasting and squandering the opportunities to minister to others. And the question is, how do I know what my gifts are? Well, my question back to you is, what do you like to do? And the most basic thing that you can do, the most basic way to figure out how to serve is just to get to know one another. Build up godly and good friendships with one another. Because when you get to know each other, when you get to see what's in your life, you'll, you'll know what the other person needs. You'll know what they're struggling with. You'll know what, what's going on in their hearts. And that's how you can minister to one another when you, get to, when you just develop relationships with those that are in the body of Christ. That's the most basic thing you can do. The most basic thing you can do is to develop godly relationships, and then just and figure out what the needs of what what the others needs are. All ministry first begins with knowing people. When you understand the other person next to you, you'll know how you can serve them. This is how we, have, this is how we have a unity in function. We know God's word, and we go and apply God's word in our lives. Not only does this glorify. God and show how beautiful God is because God has given us these gifts. This is in a lot of ways how God would be if he was here. If God was here, this is how he would serve. That's how you demonstrate Christ's likeness. Christ came not to be served but to serve. So how does he do it? He, he knows these people. He meets the needs of the people. And then we do the same thing. We, go, we elevate and we show others how beautiful our Savior is when we, when we serve other people. Not only do we need to be united in our in the spirit or in function. But lastly, we need unity in maturity. Unity in maturity, verse 13 to 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, the, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belong to the fullness of Christ. We keep doing ministry until we obtain maturity. The hope of all faithful ministry is that when you serve, you become more like our Savior. There'll be moments when you're serving one another where you realize your shortcomings. You realize how you may realize how impatient you are. And that's good, because it reveals to you where you need to grow. And if you repent of that, you can serve even better. You can be to serve with joy. The hope of, our faithful, the hope of all faithful ministry is that we just do whatever. It needs to, to, to better the body of Christ. Something as simple as folding chairs or stacking chairs or p- passing out bulletins. These are all ways that you can serve. There's no such thing as an insignificant ministry because all of these are things that Christ would do. And the Christ came and he humbled himself. This goes back to that one in verse two, right? With humility, you serve no matter what the, the uh, situation is. You do the slowly things because that's what Christ would do. And that will cause you to mature and be more like our Savior. You can identify with our Savior more. Spiritual maturity is not a set of outward behavior, but an inward understanding of who God is, what God expects us to be. Our knowledge of God will grow, which will result in us being spiritually mature. Spiritual immaturity means failure to apply spiritual knowledge or just a lack of spiritual knowledge altogether. Notice to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, sanctification happens in our knowledge of God, and the fullest result of that is we become more like our Savior. We are still here to show the world a glimpse of our God. The more the world sees our lives, the more they can, the more we walk, the more closely we walk. With the Lord, And the more the world sees that, the more people will desire our, our God. Either it will draw people to him because they want to know this God that we're following, or the people will be drawn away from him because they hate what they see. But either way, it, it helps. We're called to be mature believers. The goal of all ministry is to cause all believers to be mature in Christ. When you serve in ministry and someone rubs you the wrong way, it will cause you to see where your shortcomings are and how Christ, hand, and, and you, you, you'll see, like okay is this how Christ would handle this type of situation? Ministry places you in a situation where you will be forced to rely on God and to be more Christ-like through the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there, by the the waves and carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Maturity means that a person is not swayed by anything. Being naive may be adorable when you're a child in the faith, but it is sad when you're an adult. I have a little baby. It is adorable when she poops her pants because she doesn't know any better. It is really sad, though, if there is a normal functioning adult who is not potty trained deliberately that shows the immaturity in their actions. Spiritual maturity is the same way. If you call yourself a Christian and you know God's word, then you sh- it should change you. I remember when I first, I remember the different people I ministered to, one of them was a young Christian. He actually wasn't even a Christian when I met him. And he would just ask the most basic questions. He asked, who is Jesus? And that, that's a really good question, because it warms my heart to the people that want to know the most, the most important question, who is Jesus? But if you're like a seminary trained person, if you graduate with an MDiv and you don't know who Jesus is, there's something wrong with, with, your, with you because you fail to understand the most basic things. As a Christian, suppo- there will be a trajectory towards maturity. There's always a trajectory towards you being more like Christ. You should be more mature than you were six months ago. You should be more mature than you were six years ago. If it's, if it's stagnant for all this time, there is obviously some sin in your life that you're holding on to. Because a spiritually mature person will let go of the things of the world. you gradually grow as you study God's word, and you grow to be more like Christ. If a person doesn't know God's word, they will be swayed by every false doctrine, which will lead to false living. Notice, by, notice in the passage, by the trickery of man, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. These are lies of the devil, lies of the world. The devil wants to stunt your growth, and a mature believer will not be tossed back and forth, but are grounded in truth. False doctrine does not penetrate the mind and the lies of a mature Christian. Doctrine and theology matters, and will cause you to mature and to discern error. As a church learns God's word, as they practice God's word, maturity will happen. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. As a person matures, they will have the ability to speak the truth in love. And the more we speak truth in in love into each other's lives, the more mature that we will be. When you are in these flock groups, there's going to be people that are going to speak the truth in your life, and it will hurt it will hurt when people confront you on your sin, it will hurt because it's telling you exactly what's, what you're, what's wrong with your walk and that and that should be a good thing being a, as faithful uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you understand that people love you, they're going to say things about your walk that's actually going to be beneficial to you because those are the things that are hindering you from maturing to the next level. It's, it's, it's hindering you from being more like Christ. And people in the flock group are going to do that. I expect us to all do that with one another, that we, are, that we lovingly speak truth into each other's lives. Our hope is that we will all grow with it. But again, it requires a tremendous amount of humility to be, to be able to see and hear what other people are saying about your life. When people are pointing out things that you need to work on, humbly thank them and ask the Lord to change you to work in your heart. Because being Christ-like is what causes true joy. And happiness only comes from holiness. Hope, our culture seems to be split in terms of speaking and loving. We have a culture that's like, okay, we need to love everyone but not speak the truth, or that we speak the truth, but we do it un- unlovingly. That's not the way that Christians should be. We need both. We speak the truth and love towards one another. We need to be faithful in the way that we declare God's word. And failure to confront sin shows that you don't really love them. And, and in the church, we should be. it should be okay for us to confront each other's sin because it's biblical. In James, it tells us to con- confess our sins to one another. We should be willing to open up about our sins and ask people to confront us when when they see something that's off in our lives. The hope is that the truth will cause them to repent and turn from things in their life and to grow in spiritual maturity. The truth will cause us to be like Christ in all areas. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper work of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love each one of us have a, we all have a part in the church the more mature each of the body becomes the more mature as a whole the whole church will become the church grows in more Christ likeness our church will only mature In love, if everyone does their part in learning God's word and applying God's word in their lives, all of us have our roles: pastors, teachers, admin people, people who do evangelism, people who are in flock group leaders, people that are assisting the leaders. Everyone else, every one of us, are part of the body of Christ, and each one of us have a specific function. Each of one notice the text is that we're fitted and held together by every by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Every one of us are significant. Each one of us are are part of this, and in order for us to grow to be more Christ-like, we all need to do our part in the body of Christ. It causes the growth of the body for building up itself. My hope in this summer event is that our church becomes more mature, spiritually mature, in a, in, a, in a time where the world thrives on immaturity and wanting to be like children, one thing that we can make, do to make us distinct is that we become mature in Christ. It's sad that even in, the, in modern church context, we strive to be like kids. There are churches who make entire events to cater to young people. I want our church to be mature. I want our church to know God's word and apply it faithfully. I trust that if you continue to know God's word and apply God's word, you will grow in maturity. We all grow in a knowledge. And we need to evaluate the needs of the church and, and it will cause us to be more like Christ. We are all one body, united by spirit, united in function, united in maturity that is in Christ. And when we do these three things, we understand unity and we apply these principles into our lives people will look at our lives and will be drawn to our Savior. And not only that, but people in the church will be more drawn to our Savior when they see the, uh, the maturity of other saints. There are some people in my lives that are older that I wish like, I have, that, that has mentored me. And I'm like, man, if this person is so gentle and kind, imagine how much our Savior is. This person loves me so much. Imagine what it's like to be in the presence of our Savior. And that's why I hope for all of us, that when all of us are growing in maturity and we see each other's lives, We desire to be with Christ more. Notice that we do all of these things in the last two words in verse 16, in love. We do all of these things. We do ministry, we do everything in love because we understand that Christ loved us first and we are to love others as well. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word in that you've given us opportunity to know you and to be united with you and what a great privilege it is to be united with you, to be joint heirs, to be someone that is, uh, that, that, is a, that would receive eternal blessings and reward because of what you have done. For well, we were all once enemies, but now we are your children. Lord, may we see other believers in this fellowship that way, that we are all together, we are all brothers and sisters uh, waiting the inheritance that is waiting that that you have prepared for us. Lord, may we continue to build up one another. May we continue to seek to meet the needs of those in the church. We ask that you mature us, Lord. It is only by your doing that we can be more like you. Cause us to be more sensitive to sin. Cause us to have a greater love for you and the body of Christ. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.